Hello and welcome to episode 140 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian and I'm joined almost always by uh, James Rundle. Almost always. Almost always. Yeah. Uh, so we have another guest for y'all today, um, so you don't have to listen to RBS, I guess, for 30 minutes, so that's good for y'all. Lucky you, guys, hey. Uh, joining us in just a little bit, we have Octavio Morenzi, he's the co-founder and CEO of research firm, uh, Opamas, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, he'll be joining us here in the studio, um, he and Anna Green-Grime, sorry if I'm getting the last name incorrect, they just released a new report looking at the web data extraction market. And he's going to join to discuss their findings and explore how investment firms are using this information and some of the ways that they struggle with web scraping. Um, so that, that'll be a good, interesting discussion that is becoming more and more popular um, as firms try and find new sources of information. Mm-hmm. And then, but before that, um, let's see, my phone's ringing, so ignore me. Uh, before that... Um, well, well, before we kick off, actually, should we mention the BST North American Summit? Sure, sure, go for it, since you'll be leading it, my friend. Oh, yay, Uh, that poison chalice I've inherited, becoming editor of Waters. Um, So, yes, next Tuesday, uh, Midtown Manhattan, if you're around and you're a Byside professional, it's free to attend. We're having the Byside North American Summit. Uh, It's a full-day program featuring panels, featuring uh, a number of steadily increasing on-stage interviews, uh, which Tony and I are both conducting with various people, including... Joe Lodato from Guggenheim Securities, um, mm-hmm. Manny Alejandro, who's a former general counsel of NASDAQ and Manor Partners, and also um, one of the potential GOP candidates for New York Attorney General. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that wasn't successful, but he's going to talk to us about um, cryptocurrency and regulation and how that all sort of interacts and intertwines. should be interesting. Uh, we'll also be discussing AI, um, alternative data, all that good stuff that you guys listen to every week on the podcast. Um, we'll be sure. on stage with a host of partners. So, yeah. Uh, next Tuesday, Manhattan, come along. Come on, come on and say hi. Have some drinks with us afterwards. It'll uh, be good, fun event. Mm-hmm. Um, so good plug there, James. Good plug. Speaking of plugs, I don't know. It's, that was a terrible. Where is this going? Me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Blackstone-led consortium has closed its deal for Thomson Reuters financial and risk business. Mm-hmm. Um, so sadly, the name Refinitive is now officially in our vernacular. Still sounds like a laxative. It's uh, just, just you know. yep, yep. And get to talk about Refinitive now. Yeah. Fantastic. I love you guys with your, uh, with your oh, no, It's edgy name. though because, uh, A, it doesn't mean anything and B, it doesn't have an E on the end. So, you know, yeah. it's grammatically incoherent as well, which yeah, is yeah. awesome. Wonderful. Um, well um, so as we go forward, there will be obviously a lot of interesting things that are going to come out. How does Blackstone, um, and so the consortium includes uh, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board and the Singapore State Fund GIC. Yep. They're the ones also involved in it. So I guess to start, we've obviously spoken a lot about this um, when the deal happened. We've written a bunch of articles about it that you all can check out. Um it sounds like so. There have already been reports that they're looking to sell its currency trading platform FXL, and there's been you know people whispering the name TradeWeb as a potential target too. But in the Financial Times, CEO David Craig, who's uh, going to lead Refandive, uh, he said he told uh, the Financial Times that quote definitely they definitely have no intention to sell TradeWeb, and that. Quote, FX is our crown jewel asset class. It's an amazing business. Why would why would you want to lose that when it's your core to your platform? So 
they're not willing to sell any of their assets. And the other interesting thing came out of that uh, article was um, just kind of they breaking down some of the leveraged buyout that they or that that they or how leveraged they are. So um, the company is from the uh, Financial Times. The company must also contend with 3.5 billion of junk rated debt with turnover of 6 billion in 2017 and 11,000 employees were definitive with Thomson Reuters largest division but its earnings before interest tax appreciation amortization margins of 29% were its lowest so and then in that article um uh, David also says we are going to be spending so that we are going to grow our business. We're going to invest in our business so we can contend with the likes of Bloomberg and Faxet and some others. Yeah, I mean, look, I I don't believe him. First of all, I think they are going to sell FXL. I'm not sure that Blackstone uh, necessarily has any interest in running um, a venue mm-hmm. uh, and FXL is a Um I think the future for them is more in their kind of data analytics products, their pricing products. Um, you, they've got some pretty powerful propositions there, and I don't see necessarily that running FX all ties in with that. Secondly, um, yeah, like the junk rated debt isn't great. That's a big number. Mm-hmm. Bought out by their margins, easily enough, I think. But um, there's a lot of fat to trim at Thomson Reuters. We've said this before, I think, in various podcasts that. You know, everyone you speak to at Thomson Reuters is a manager of some kind. It has it in their title. There's a lot of kind of yeah. middle layers that can be trimmed down easy enough, and you can reduce those. Well, you can sort of, sorry, you can increase those margins by reducing your kind of expenditure along the way, I think. And a lot of that's going to come from personnel, quite frankly. Well, and in that article, he says, they say that uh, cutting positions, increasing the number of offshore jobs to Asia. Uh, will be part of right-sizing, quote-unquote. I love that term, right-sizing, right-sizing. organization. <laughs> what the you hell, guys? Come speak. on. Laying people it. off, homie. Uh, it also aims to save $300 million a year by the end of 2021 from headcount and overall save $650 million a year. Um, and I like this quote uh, from uh, from uh, David. He says, I don't see it as offshoring. I see it. I, it's about getting talent. So what are you saying about all your U.S. U.K.-based staff that they're not talented, and that's uh, why you're laying them off? Uh, it's not no, just you can't to be save talented and expensive. Tony. Yeah, this is it. It's like some guy the other day when I was asking about his financial results was telling me that they had negative profit, yeah. and I was like, "Wait, so you mean a loss? Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Come on, like this is it. It's not about talent. It's about reducing cost base. Just be honest about it and yeah. open. That's. I mean, like everyone knows that like, you've been bought by a private equity firm. Everyone knows what happens when you get bought by a private equity firm. We've been through it at yeah. our company sure. every time. You sort of. You cut down, you reshape, you slim down, you trim up, and that kind of thing, and then they flip you, and then they move you on. Yeah, I mean, what you hope is, ideally, that it's not, you know, like uh, Bain Capital, you know, come in and just lay waste to the ground, that hopefully there is some investment there, and that would be interesting. You know, usually on these timelines, it's about a five-year horizon, right? Um, We were talking about this with uh, Max Bowie um, on IMD, Uh, but, you know, usually there's that kind of five-year horizon of private equity where they either decide to, you know, cut down costs and make it lean and mean, um, and then sometimes they put some big time investment and in it really kind of shine it up to then sell it off and yeah. then flip their product uh, for a profit down the road. Um, if you are at TR, if you are clients of, I'm sorry, Refinitive, um, <laughs> then you know that's what you're hoping for. You're hoping that there will be massive investment in you know things like machine learning, NLP, these kind of whey protein you know, shakes, yeah. you know, this kind of thing. It's yeah, exactly. Um, so, well, you know, I guess that we'll see what happens on that, but that's like, that, that'll be the bright side. But I got to imagine that you read some of these statements, you, you, you hear about it, you know, 
you have to be worried. Like if you're working now, you, your job security can't feel that great right now. I would be worried. I yeah. Mean, I mean, if I mean, some I think core divisions are gonna be okay. Like I said, the data analytics guys, um, they're probably gonna be fine. It's gonna be the uh, expansive marketing divisions of each business line. I think that are gonna have the biggest swinging cuts to use a UK political term. Sure. Um, I think the biggest problem for this company, though. Um, I mean, I don't know the exact details of it. I probably should have looked it up, actually, um, and come prepared for this podcast rather than just yeah, flying by the seat of my ahead. pants. But yeah, well it's this um, covenant they have with the Reuters News Division. That's mm-hmm. where they're paying things like a billion dollars a year to them or something, something like that, for, like, yeah. for 20 years. That's a lot of money to come out from your bottom line each year to go straight to Reuters News, which you're not even going to benefit from, right? Yeah. I mean, everyone knows that news is not exactly a high-margin profit business. Um so whether that's Blackstone that keeps them or whether they do flip them after five years to someone like Wild Speculation Time, um, like IHS Markets, or to any other kind of conglomeration of various vendors yeah. that come together. Um, a fact set could be in there. A fact set, maybe. Even Bloomberg, you never know. Um, this is going to be a big noose around their neck, I think. It's a huge thing they committed to to get this business. I'm not entirely sure why. They agreed to that price. I mean, they're already paying like $22 billion for it or something, right? It's yeah. crazy. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in, in terms of the near-term future, I think that's the you'll see a very different company emerge from this. In the long term, I think it very much depends on what Blackstone and uh, the Canadian Pension Fund's investment rise in this. Yeah. I can't imagine they want to be long-term operators of trading technologies for financial markets, you know, yeah. especially not a pension plan. They've got no business doing that. Yeah. They want to put money in and get an investment back get for their members. members. That's yep. their job. Absolutely. Blackstone, you know, you put your partner's money in, you get the return back. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, we well, don't sit there running Icon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, this is just, you know, we're, we're, this is finally, you know, after all the news stories about the buy and everything like that, we're able now to get to see, see they're going to roll out a new version of Icon next year. Um, so we'll see what kind of enhancements that has. But so right now it's very early days. If I guess if you have some re- thoughts on Refinitiv, feel free to reach out to us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess kind of just leave it there for now. Um, as I said, if you guys want to talk, talk to us, our information is included in the uh, article. Mm-hmm. And we will also be, as James mentioned before, we will be at the Buy Side Technology North American Summit, something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and that will be on Tuesday. Uh, the Marriott, are we at the Marriott Marquis? That is a good question. I'm assuming we, we came are. very prepared yeah, yeah. for this. Well done. Excellent. I'm kind of assuming that people just tell me where to go on Monday and I'll just be there and it'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. Um, and then I'll drink heavily on Tuesday evening and uh, try and forget about it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, come and drink with us. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, um, so let's though turn it over to Octavio. Again, we're going to be talking about uh, web data extraction. Um, lots of good stuff in this report we just put out and hopefully some insightful stuff for you guys to take away as you look at your own uh, web scraping processes. So uh, thank you, and we'll be back next week. Shut up, Jim. <laughs> so we are now joined by Octavio Morenzi, the co-founder and CEO of Opamas. Uh, Octavio, thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. So you and your colleague, Anna, I believe it was, um, recently released a new report looking at the web data extraction market. So I guess the natural place to start here is just say, you know, why was this an area that you guys decided to delve into? Well, I suppose in, in the asset management industry and in, in the trading industry, there's an increasing focus on, on new data sources and trying to get some sort of competitive advantage by using sort of fairly esoteric data, uh, what you might sort of broadly call alternative data. 
And web page extraction is one tool that people are using to try and get that kind of advantage, basically scraping unstructured data off the, off the web and trying to put it, that into some sort of structured form that you can then analyze and use with predictive analytics to figure out where is a particular stock going or where are interesting investment opportunities. So there's a fairly large amount of investment going into this space uh, with a bunch of firms basically scraping millions of pages every day, trying to find some sort of data and patterns out there. Uh, and it's a pretty large area of investment. So that's why we thought it'd be interesting to look at. And it seems like it's a, a particularly fast-growing industry. I mean, in your report, you say it's going from $2 billion to, you project, $7 billion by 2020. Um, so when we talk about web scraping and we talk about the information people are looking for, are we talking things like regulatory filings, uh, company earnings reports? Uh, what's the kind of information? That people I, 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 absolutely, that kind of stuff, certainly. So that would be sort of the basics, I would say, you know, tr trying to extract stuff from, well, trying, getting out of quarterly filings, annual reports and things of that sort. That would be sort of the basics. But then you go beyond that, there's all sorts of government websites with lots of data in them or uh, websites. You might think about Amazon, for example, as a prime target for web scraping where people try and scrape prices off to try and figure out how well is a particular company doing or what is being sold or not being sold. So people would do that kind of stuff and try and find things. Or so you could imagine real estate prices or stock prices, all sorts of different kinds of information. So it's virtually limitless. What, one of the more interesting ones that we bumped into was a firm that was extracting information from different uh, national customs organizations where they were looking at what was being imported and exported. So they would extract all that stuff from their web pages. There's sort of standardized reporting there, and they were scraping this together for 100 different customs organizations and then basically saying this is what international trade flows look like. So those are the kinds of things you can imagine people putting together. And it's interesting. I mean, so when we talk about this kind of technology and, and the sophistication, I guess, of what people are doing with it, um, are we talking more at a very basic level, kind of like search engine spiders, just sort of scripts, trawling the internet, scraping my pages? Are we talking more sophisticated programs that are actually querying databases and, and taking the information like that? Well, they, they typically would not be querying databases. Now, you, you can sort of uh, get around that if you see that the web page you're trying to scrape is in the back end querying a database. So if you can identify that, you can sort of pretend you're that page and get the, the data out in a structured way. Um, it, it is much more sophisticated than just a spider crawling and indexing things because a spider will typically go out and simply download all the text and put that in a database. And when you search for a particular word or term, it will find that in, in that page somewhere. So that's basically taking unstructured data and keeping it unstructured. This is basically about going to a, a web page and extracting data and basically putting a structured format that you can then look at a time series or compare the information and see how it evolves over time. So I think there's, it, it's, it's a lot more sophisticated than that. And there's also a lot of things you have to get around. There's some firms or some web pages that make it fairly difficult to extract the data. So they won't tag it, so you have to add tags to it. Or they'll present some of the information as images as opposed to actual text. And so you have to get around those kinds of things. There's all sorts of anti-web page, uh, page scraping technologies out there that firms like to, to employ and deploy. And so you have to find your way around that and make sure you can, you can make that happen. And sometimes it might be in different file formats. So it could be an HTML file, it could be a PDF file, it could be an Excel spreadsheet. There's all sorts of different file formats that you might have to think about uh, importing. And I guess one of the other interesting things, get out of my way, James. Uh, the, one of the other interesting things here that I, that I was reading in the report is that you kind of looked at this idea of you know homegrown in-house tools being used, and that seemed to be the more popular way. So when we when you talk about that $2.5 two spend today, um, much of that is spent on in-house. Um, but 
the way you guys see it is that that's going to move toward more external providers, more, I guess, um, a vendor kind of community uh, helping out with this. Um, I think they had, what was it, uh, just looking at the numbers here, you had $400 million was spent in, uh, of that $2.5 billion was spent in 2017 was spent on external solutions and services, but that number will spike to $2 billion uh, by 2020. Why is that trend happening now? I guess is what what's happening in the market that's making that such challenging that people are like, you know, let's get rid of this. Well, I, th- I think a lot of people have put programs into place to to do web page extraction, and are finding it actually quite difficult to maintain. So it just becomes a pain in the neck. So I, I talked about some of the anti web page uh, uh, scraping technologies out there to keep up to date on all those things and make sure you're able to get around the obstacles that people put in your way. Uh, is is a big is a big task, and particularly when you get to a more complicated page structure, then you start to need specialized technology. Now, internal IT teams can do that certainly, but it's not their core focus and their core competence. So it makes sense to basically sort of outsource this, that to someone who does just that and nothing other than that. Uh, and uh, once you're scrape, and it's also I suppose a, a question of, of, of scalability as well. Once you're scraping millions of pages, as some firms are that becomes a huge maintenance headache. And bear in mind, things can happen like the layout of pages can change. So a company might be presenting data in a certain way one day, uh, and then tomorrow change the layout of its web pages entirely. So that's going to break your algorithm and your web scraping uh, system. And you have to go back then and reprogram it and figure out, well, what happened? Where is what data field now located? I mean, some of that you can automate, but that already requires a fairly sophisticated kind of approach to be able to detect changes in web page layout uh, and then automate a, a response and reaction to that. By and large, you need a sort of a manual intervention to do that. Is that what you kind of found to be the most biggest challenges? I mean, what often goes wrong? What turns these kind of projects into boondoggles that don't really yield any, you know, investment uh, insights? Well, I, I suppose one might be sort of just the choice of the data you're trying to extract. So in, in many cases, you might be extracting data that ultimately you find is not terribly valuable. So there's the choice of it. Uh, but in terms of the actual web page scraping, you have to think about, uh, yes, changes in layout uh, uh, that then might lead to serious data quality issues. So if you're not aware that there's been a change in the, in, in the page layout and you carry on scraping that as before, you're going to get all sorts of garbage into your data. So that is, is something that is a big problem. And as I said, if you're, maintain, if you're looking at hundreds of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pages out there, that's going to be a continuous problem for you is, is updating those, those, the page layouts and figuring out what data is where. Um, so first of all, Tony, great use of the word boondoggle. Thank you. Really Thank you. Uh, <laughs> secondly, um, the can't say that word again. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Um, Why well, is that an unusual word, boondoggle? I, mean, I, 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 mean, I, I don't really come across it very much. I've got to no. say it's, it seems slightly American. Hey, can, can I, I get some credit here for my word? You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in your report, you identified a few key areas where this kind of technology is going to be beneficial for things like supply chain management. Um, risk management, uh, I guess financial analysis to an extent as well. Can you maybe talk about sort of the risk and, and the, the analysis side and kind of, you know, where people can use this and what they can use it to identify and, and help out with? Well, I mean, on the risk side, you might think of it uh, for things like background checks. Mm-hmm. You you can go out there, various different base, uh, databases and get information about individuals and see, is, you know, this is like sex crimes offender or things of that sort. So for things like that, for background checks, for uh, know your customer kind of uh, policies and procedures that might be useful. Mm-hmm. You might get advanced warning through news feeds of a company going bankrupt or having financial difficulties, things of that sort. So there's all sorts of things that you could get then from, from the internet that would be really valuable to, to do in that kind of space. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, because one of the interesting things is you, you guys pointed to, um, I guess it's famously well-known, but uh, Anne Hathaway, there was positive news. So this idea of scraping for sentiment, that that can be sometimes can lead you astray and that people are like, I guess there was positive news about Anne Hathaway, which all of a sudden there was Berkshire Hathaway saw a spike in its stock and there might have been a correlation there. So is that is that kind of another area of just where this is still kind of a, a growing and improving space? Yeah, I mean, the data, the technology is not perfect, right? So there's always issues there. I mean, that's one example of the kinds of things we saw. Another example was when the, uh, I, I think there was some J.P. Morgan analyst who downgraded General Motors. Now, there was some software out there that interpreted that as saying that J.P. Morgan is acquiring J, uh, General Motors, <laughs> uh, which are, are two very, very different stories. Uh, so you have to address that with some caution. Not all web scraping technology is absolutely perfect. So sometimes it's going to get it wrong, particularly in, in areas like sentiment analysis and extracting that from news. Because okay. you're, you're going from very unstructured text and, and natural language to try and get some sort of structured information out, which is not, not terribly straightforward to do. Yeah. And then you know, one of the other things I was looking at, so in the report it kind of lays out the, the various stages that, that you have to go through you know, during this process uh, to, to acquire this information and make it usable. The quality control piece I thought was, you know, interesting, and you guys list some of the, the processes underneath it, but so monitoring of successful and unsuccessful downloads, uh, the deduplication of data, verification of outliers, identifying which extractors are not working due to web page layout changes, things like this stuff that you'd already mentioned. This all would seem to me to be incredibly manual, um, uh, manually intensive. Are there ways that firms are trying to go about automating this? You know, is this kind of where the potential AI, machine learning, NLP, those kind of fancy buzzwords kind of come in play? Or will this, for the foreseeable future, always be kind of teams just having to go through this manually? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. Look, a lot of people are trying to deal with these issues with fancy buzz, buzzwords with, with varying degrees of success. There's, I think, always going to be a, a manual component to it because you can't really... Uh, have contingencies for every possibility, every possible outcome. So there's always going to be have, have to be some manual intervention. But a lot of those things that you just mentioned can be automated to a certain extent. So layout changes within reason you can still handle uh, if, if the layout changes aren't too extreme. But things can happen like they, they change their web addresses and, and things of that sort. So you have to redirect your search engine to, to a different website. So uh, there's a lot of things that you have to do manually. You can't get around. But there's a lot of stuff you can automate. And exactly, it's exactly that a lot of the in-house efforts then fail as a result of that because they're starting to find that they haven't got the tools to handle those things automatically. They haven't developed the software to do that. And so they're having to really have staff address those issues. I mean, typically it would be offshore to someplace like India or something like that where you might have lower labor costs. But still, it, it's, it's going to have a, a, a big impact and delay in terms of getting the data and the, and the quality of it as well. So I think that's that's a big part of the reason we're seeing people moving more from in-house development to out, 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 outsourcing that stuff and using off-the-shelf packages. Okay. Good work. I was just going to say, I find it interesting, um, you know, when we talk about this kind of data, um, it's often coupled with talks about other forms of alternative data, whether that's geospatial, whether it's uh, satellite imagery, whatever. What I quite liked in the report is that you referred to the internet as kind of the ultimate data set. Um, and in terms of sort of what people have done now and what they are doing versus the potential um, data mining capability, I guess, that exists out there. Um, is it a case that we barely scratch the surface of what we're doing? Is there more to come? What's the uh, what's the kind of outlook? 
Well, I, I think there's, there's, there's more and more data sources out there. So, I, I mean, in, in terms of alternative data in general, there's just more and more people bringing more data sets to market. So there's just an explosion in the number of different data sets. Uh, and there's an explosion in the, in the providers of, of similar data sets. So there's a tremendous downward pressure then on, on the, the pricing of that. So the data is becoming cheaper and cheaper. There's more and more of it. Uh, and the amount of data on the internet just keeps growing. I mean, we put charts in there showing this astronomical growth rate in terms of the number of users and the number of pages out there. So this is something that's going to become, I shouldn't say worse and worse, better and better if you want to see it that way. But there's just more and more data out there that people are going to have to try and extract and use and try and use for some sort of investment advantage, try and use that data to find patterns and trends that you, gives you some sort of predictive power in terms of where a particular stock or company is going. Sure. And in it, you, you talk about some of the legal uh, implications, you know, uh, roadblocks perhaps that exist uh, for firms, and you talk about a couple of the uh, cases that have already gone through, where right now the courts seem to be in favor of the companies that are doing the web scraping. Do you see GDPR as as that really kind of comes in the form? Obviously, it's live now, but as people kind of get used to it and as some, you know, maybe cases make their way through it, do you see that being an impediment toward the development of web scraping? Or do you think that by and large, the PII aspect of what they're attaining isn't going to be that, uh, that, that they'll be able to get around that, I guess? Well, I would say about GDPR, it's a bit vague. And so we're going to have to basically wait and see how the regulators interpret it and that and, and what kind of cases they bring, what kind of enforcement actions they bring. So it's not entirely clear. I have talked to a number of alternative data vendors have basically said, we're not going to sell any more European data. We're going to wait and see what happens. So uh, you mentioned a geolocation data. I've seen at least one or two firms basically say, post-GDPR, we're not selling any more European data. We're just going to wait. Mm -hmm. uh, they might have to wait a long time before there's clarity because they're going to have to wait for some sort of case similar to their data to be brought. But so it's definitely had a chilling effect in, in the European market in, in terms of European data. People are trading very, very cautiously there because the fines are so draconian that basically one infraction can, can sink your business. Uh, though I don't think they'll be that harsh in terms of the implementation, but at least on the books, they, they could do that. Was it 4% of your annual revenue or something? For, for each infraction. Each so, so you know, if, if you leak data about 100 people, you know, then they can come after you for 400% of your annual revenues, and that would destroy any company. Sure. Um, so that that is very keen on people's minds, and so they're very careful about that. That being said, from an investment perspective, most people are not interested in, in, in personal information. You're interested in company-level information. Uh, the, the fact that I bought something or not is, is, is kind of irrelevant to them. They're interested in seeing, well, how many people went to a particular retailer or bought a particular product. So that becomes sort of the, the, the challenge there. But, but GDPR has, a, has had a chilling effect. Now, in terms of the U.S. regulation, there's always this question of, of insider trading and could this be construed to be insider trading? And the insider trading laws in the U.S. are a bit weird in the sense that uh, the, the law is that if you collect this data in violation of some sort of uh, duty of care to a client or in, in violation of some contract that you have, you might be considered to be insider trading. So if you're scraping uh, data off a website where there's an end-user agreement that says you're not allowed to do that, even though you know, no one reads the, those, those things, and you do it anyway, that could potentially, and then you trade on that information, that could potentially be construed as being insider information. Mm, okay. So if there's a violation of some end user agreement or some sort of contract or something of that sort, then potentially 
that could be, could be problematic. Could be problematic, yeah. 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 And then, you know, the other thing I was just interested in is I'm familiar with uh, Thinknum, which is two Princeton grads. Um, uh, one went to Goldman, one went to Edge Fund. They kind of came together to create, they, they morphed the tool, to, to. but this is basically what they offer. I'm not sure if it's something that you looked at as much, but in the vendor sphere, are there some other maybe interesting companies that you came across that are entering into the space specifically that are looking to help you know hedge funds, banks, people like that, the investment community? Well, there, there were two particularly interesting companies that we came across. One was Import.io, another one was called Content Grabber. Uh, who seem to have some of the more sophisticated tools out there in terms of, of web scraping. A, a lot of the tools that we came across are very simple stuff, so that, that, that didn't take into account changing website layouts or more sophisticated anti-web page scraping uh, technologies. So those two basically stood out, I think, as sort of the leaders in the space in terms of the, the quality of the technology. Uh, Content Grabber, I think, uh, has a big hedge fund behind them, WorldQuant invested in them, and, and so... I guess they've been using the technology so much they thought, well, this must be a good space to be in and, and actually made an investment in them. But those two would stand out as, as major ones. And there's a whole bunch of tools out that are, that are much simpler and less sophisticated in scope and scale. Do you find that these tools, so in the, in the space right now, as you see kind of the vendor landscape, do you kind of view it more as these are tools that will help you to do it, but you will be in charge of the analytics portion of it and that or... And is that maybe where you kind of maybe see this moving where there'll be vendors popping in that will help more on the analytical side of this rather than just the obtaining of the information? Well, that, that's a good question because a lot of these the, the companies I cited are not analytical companies. That They're going to help you extract the data and then it's up to you basically to do something useful with it. Mm -hmm. that, that being said, I, I suppose the way you might see it occurring is that there are companies out there that are collecting the data and we'll do the anal analysis for you and then we'll provide that to, to the asset manager. So if you look at someone like UBS, they are spending a lot of time and effort web scraping, collecting huge amounts of data and then using that in their equities research process and we'll also then do that on an ad hoc basis for their clients as well. Okay. Well, Octavio, thank you. Uh, to the report, it's called the Web Data Extraction Market. Um, we will link to it. It's on my site as well. Uh, but thank you for coming in and giving me insights. Thanks so much. Sure.